Welcome to Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Bringing the finest trumpeters from around this planet Earth, sharing their stories that will thrill and inspire your trumpet journey, here's your host, James Newcomb. It's funny how this podcasting business works. The person that we're going, to about, we're going to hear from in a couple of minutes, Phil Snedeker, I spoke to him last in the sp- late spring of 2017 for a little series I was doing called Secrets of the Musical Mind. And just last Sunday, of the 20th of March, I republished that, that really great interview uh, on this podcast feed called Trumpet Dynamics. And I just reached out to... Phil and just said, hey, you know, just want to let you know that I republished the interview from five years ago. And, uh, you know, if you're up for it, why don't why don't we schedule another call and just talk shop for a little while? And he was game for it. So here we are. We are uh, really privileged to have on the show Phil Snedeker, Associate Professor of Trumpet at the Hart School in Hartford, Connecticut. He has been with the Peabody Conservatory, George Mason University, Tosin University. He's played with, if there's a symphony orchestra in the D.C. area, he's probably played with it. He's also the founder of the uh, Washington Symphonic Brass. And he's just just done some really, really amazing things. Uh, written several etude books, which are required reading or playing in several conservatories and colleges in the United States, probably elsewhere outside of the United States. And uh, just it, it really, really wonderful achievements that we can talk about and, and uh, discuss in our time together. But uh, it's great to have you on the show. Phil. Thanks for having me, James. Appreciate it. I, uh, I had forgotten about that original interview. And when I listened to it again, it was you had some great Great interaction there, some great information, and uh, there's so much to talk about in the trumpet world that it's it's great to be back on and kind of get a different slant on it. Uh, since I talked to you, I have achieved full professor at the Hart School. I got my tenure about three weeks ago, about, oh, wow. about a month ago, and so I got a, a tenure in professor, which I don't know, for me means I still need to pay attention to my kids, which is what I'm up here for. <laughs> I... I one of the reasons I took this job is because I got tired of, of doing the Peabody and the George Mason thing where I would do these drive-by lessons and I would show up, I'd be driving around the beltway like a crazy man and I'd be doing a thousand gigs and then I'd show up to the lesson and I was like, okay, who are you and what are we doing? <laughs> and so now I have this studio of really great students. We just had a concert last night with with Omar Thomas and and... Uh, our wind ensemble and our, our, our orchestra, uh, uh, Valerie Coleman, and uh, our guest artists, and we play some great stuff, uh, and my students are doing well. It's great to see them back there in the back row executing what we've worked about worked on trumpet-wise. All right, wonderful. Well, before we get any further, I also want to make another introduction. We have my wife, Sana, on the call with us, and she has a she she read Phil's bio and she has a couple of questions that we that she wants to ask Phil at the at the appropriate time. So welcome, Sana. It's nice to have you. Hello, everyone. Hi, Phil. Nice to meet you. Ask away anytime, Sana. 
<laughs> I think I will leave my part right at the end. Okay. <laughs> Save the best for last. So now I'm worried about this, but uh... <laughs> the tension the tension is building. Well, <laughs> Phil, I, I want to pick your brain about this because when when I played uh, our conversation from five years ago, just just recently on this podcast, I was listening to it again as you were uh, for the first time in five years, and the, you you had that story about Leonard Bernstein at I think it was Tanglewood, and you were saying something along the lines of, and my son is in the room, so I'm I'm not going to say exactly what you said. But Bernstein said, "Yeah, he said basically, if you're not er- if you're not nervous, there's something seriously wrong with you." Essentially, right. is what he said. And uh, I, I want to get maybe discuss this a little bit because I thought about that. The thought that came to my mind when I was thinking about this is when I'm doing like my specialty is podcasts. You know, it's, I'm, I've made a name for myself speaking more than I have playing when in the trumpet world, and so I've been doing this for a day or two. And I've gotten to the point where I am comfortable in my own skin doing an interview with someone like yourself. Whereas when I first started seven years ago, I would have I would have been nervous as all get out. I would have had the sweaty palms and the dry mouth and you know all of those physical things that happen when you get nervous. But now, you know, seven years later, I can do it and I and I feel comfortable with it. But at the same time, I still get nervous. And, and the, the nerves that I feel are like an anticipation of something that I know is going to be good. I, I, I've been able to channel that nervous energy into something positive. Can you speak a little bit on that? Sure. Uh, you know, every week we do studio class at my school. Every Monday night, everybody basically plays for everybody else. And when the you can see it, when the new people come in, they're just completely petrified they they have to play alone in front of a group of their peers and they come from these programs where that's kind of rare if not non-existent so they get used to it and we talk about welcoming the nerves and how that's not the nerves aren't going to go away you're just going to go oh that's what that nerve thing feels like i'm going to just go with it and it still happens to me i mean i you know i as many things as i've done i still get in quote-unquote, high-pressure situations, and I get a little nervous, but we know what to do with those nerves, and we know how to make those into positive, uh, turn it into positive energy. And that's what you have to kind of convince your your students that that's a, a good thing. And so Pete Sampras, the famous tennis player, talks about good stress and bad stress. And this is good stress, right? We want to be engaged. We want to be going doing this. I mean, you could sit at home today and, and watch binge watch a Netflix series and have no stress, but you chose to do this podcast and put yourself on the line and put out something. And that's, that's what life is all about. Yeah. Well, I, I, I hate to tell on myself, but after this, I'm going to binge watch Better Call Saul. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you deserve it because you did a podcast, right? Exactly. Exactly. I've, I've contributed something of value to the world. So I'm going to reward myself. These, these students that I assume they're freshmen coming into your studio and they're in this, all of a sudden they're in this situation. How long does it take for them to uh, not show those nerves and just say, hey, this is who I am and this is what I've got today? It, it depends on the student. I mean, some of them get it over, over it after four or five times playing. Some of them take all semester. Some of them take a year or so. But, and, and you know, everybody that gets up there is still nervous. It's, a, it's how you're, how, how effective are you after you've gotten nervous? And so, now they're just used to it. And I, I, I got to say the other day, we, we, everybody played their stuff. They're all getting ready for either recitals or, uh, 
or juries, and they got up and they just they're getting so much better and. And I was gotta say, I gotta tell you guys, you guys are just knocking it out of the park. I mean, you could still tell they're nervous. They're not not nervous, but they're very, they're still getting their musical message across. And that's what we have to, and that's what Bernstein was talking about, is that if you're not nervous, you don't care enough to go out and put something that you've worked very hard and that's important to you out there to your audience. And that's what being nervous, it kind of signifies in, in a good way that you're nervous right now for this podcast to go well and that uh, yesterday when I was playing at the Cathedral of St. Joseph, we were doing a big service uh, that, that I wanted to play the Rheinberger bright. I mean, <laughs> Ezekiel Menendez throws these crazy things at me and I want to play it really well. And, and, and then I did it and it, and it was like, wow, that's really cool. I, I mean, I, at, at, <laughs> at my age, be, still being able to kind of get up for something unusual and, uh, unfamiliar to me and read it and and do well is i take pride in what's the name of that piece again reinenberger reinberger uh reinberger yes he's a he was a famous composer uh that mainly wrote for organ and this piece was originally i think just for organ but uh they he he wanted me to play it for this service uh, it was a sonata by reinberger in in f minor and it was a <clears throat> excuse me beautiful piece uh a little rangy, uh, went up to C's and D flats on, uh, and, and you know, I just played it on C trumpet, but it was low enough to where I needed to play, keep on C trumpet, and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna go for this. And and was I nervous? Yeah, because there were the the cathedral was completely packed, and and it was, it, you know, they were all kind of listening. So it was, you know, I love putting myself in situations like that and and prevailing. It, it, because it keeps me sharp and keeps me young. And even if I don't prevail, let's say I, I screw it up, I, I still need to challenge myself that way. If I'm just doing stuff I'm comfortable with, then whatever. You know, I, I, I can just, I can do that the rest of my life. But if I'm always challenging myself to do something uh, difficult and new, then I think that's, again, what, what we're here for. Sana, I want to say that if you if you feel a need to jump in and ask anything at any time, you're, you're welcome to. You don't, we're not... You don't have a quota of two questions. You don't have a limit. So, anytime you want to say anything, you can ask. But Phil, I want to, <laughs> I want, I want to get the story of you. How did you get started on trumpet? I went to Kachina Elementary School in Phoenix, Arizona, when I was in I don't know fourth, fifth grade, and it was linked with the middle school and the high school. And uh, they came in and did a talent show. The high school kids came in and did a talent show for the elementary school kids. And the curtain opened, and I heard, <laughs> it was the theme to Hawaii Five-O, the original one. That dates me quite a bit. But anyway, I, I looked I looked at the trumpet players like, wow, that is the coolest thing ever. I want to play trumpet. So so the next year when we moved to Dallas, and they asked me what, trump, what instrument I wanted to play, I said trumpet. So the Hawaii Five-O, the, the Hawaii high, Five-O high school thing. trumpet section got you hooked on it. It was just one trumpet. It was a combo. It was piano, bass, drums, uh, saxophone, trumpet. Got it. Got it. How did how would how did, how did it go for you when you first started? Tell us tell us about the first couple of years, Phil Snedeker. I I didn't I didn't practice very much. My mom made me go up and practice. I remember that. She goes, years they we rented a Getson cornet, and I you know you learn the new note, and you learn whatever the new thing is, and you play in band. But um, I was in Texas, so that, that whole band machine down there was going. And then I found a teacher. I found this teacher named John Nelson, who ended up 
teaching me all the way through, uh, <clears throat> off and on through high school. Uh, John Nelson uh, has passed away. He had a heart attack when he was uh, in his late 50s, um, which which is kind of the way to go, actually. It's, <laughs> it beats sitting in a hospital room, but I mean, he had a heart attack and just died jogging on tour with Fort Worth Symphony. But the story behind John Nelson is the way he would teach he would just play stuff back and forth to you. And he had the most beautiful, relaxed, singing sound. And really, that's where I got most of what I am musically today is, is, is the fact that I didn't know anything was hard. In fact, I was playing Ds and E flats above the staff when I was in elementary school, not knowing what that was. He would just play it back and forth, and we'd go up and play songs up there. And he'd play out of the Schubert book uh, that was Schubert uh, song cycle. Uh, melodies transcribed for trumpet and we just play back and forth he played you know die schone Müller, and and, and he play it back and forth and we'd play you know and 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 so i have that sound in my head and he, he was a very relaxed guy he would kind of just play it wasn't like you know that that was just very relaxed singing sound and and so that was that was the beginning of the trumpet for me is that was it wasn't like oh you've got to do this and this and this it was just like sound like this yeah so he, he, in ways, he taught you to be your own teacher. Yeah, well, he, he, he taught, taught me to be my own musician first. He, the, the musical message was much more important than, you know, we would work on stuff that I couldn't do technically, but it was, it was the musical intent that was important. So when, when you're teaching, I, I would assume that he, this John Nelson had quite an impact on you as a teacher. And when you're taking someone, you're molding someone, let's say who's 18, 19 years old, and they have a desire to be, you know, a, a professional player, play at a really high level. How much of that is stuff that you teach them, and how much of it is they you you just teach them how to teach themselves? Well, that's that's a good point. I mean, you have to be able to teach yourself, but you have to give you have to have the tools to do it. So. So with John, like I always, I, I, I formed into this, I think pretty good musician, but I never ended up solving my trumpet problems. Um, and I had many. And so with my students, by the time I get them, they're 18, 19, they've, they've, they've listened to enough, hopefully music, uh, to where they, they kind of know where, what direction they want to go. And they, they have a musical intent, but some of them are so debilitated with the way they play that I have to fix that. Um, and and I've, I'm I'm pretty good at that. And then we then we go down the musical route. Uh, we, we do it simultaneously, of course. But uh, you know, a lot of listening with my students. Uh, if they are just pulling up stuff on YouTube and Spotify and not knowing who they're listening to, we we kind of fix that. It's like go. Go decide who you like. Do you like Hokan or Ole Etwat Anderson, or do you like Winton better, or do you like, uh, you know, uh, Alison Balsam better? Figure out who you love to listen to and try to emulate that. Don't just listen to some, you know, South Nebraska all-state band recording of some student putting. Not, no offense to South Nebraska, but you know, don't listen to some student play this piece you're working on and try to imitate that because that's just. You know, you need to listen to a great professional player that you uh, aspire yeah. to. So to answer your question, John always had an effect on me musically, but I I have since been able to fix my problems in my trumpet playing, and I'm able to fix my students' problems as well. And most of it has to do with the way they approach the instrument very physically, um, and they, they end up being 
trumpet playing becomes harder than it needs to for them. So my job as a trumpet teacher is to make it easy. Trumpet playing was always easy for John Nelson. He'd sit there and he'd play and he'd kind of, you know, just be so relaxed. And I was like, wow, how does he do that? It's like effortless for him. And I never, he didn't know how he did that, really. And and if he did, he didn't tell me because he didn't want to get into the specifics because I was imitating him so well. It was actually later after I left him that I started introducing the effort into it because I had to get it right. It was like I had to get the audition material together and play the audition and it was very stressful. <laughs> so, so then I introduced a lot of stress into my playing and I had to get that out. Is that like emotional stress or physical stress? Both, yes. Both. Okay. Yeah. Emotional stress, we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, that's that's being nervous. But for me, literally approaching the trumpet with effort was, was something I was really good at for a long time. <laughs> I didn't know how to not do that. You were good at it to your detriment. That's right. I, I could I, I was a really strong person, so I could, you know, muscle my way through things and okay. kind of get it out. But I that it wasn't easy like John Nelson or or like when you listen to, to great players like, you know, Hokan or or Ole or or Allison or Tyne Thing Helseth or any of those people that that play and you go wow that looks really easy you know why because it is it's really easy for them because they figured out how to balance out their playing. So how is it that you had uh, this teacher John Nelson who played effortlessly sitting back probably with a beer in his hand left hand he's playing <laughs> playing the Haydn concerto with his right hand and uh, how how is it that with that influence, you got some of these problems, these physical problems that were brought on by nerves. Because I went on to to a major conservatory, and um, I had great teachers. That wasn't my teacher's fault, but you you end up putting pressure on yourself to do well. And I I ended up I ended up not being a very good teacher for myself. I think that's the best way to put it. I ended up solving problems with effort, and I was doing too much at Eastman. I was playing lead in the jazz ensemble. And I was playing with this brass quintet that was kind of the premier brass quintet for Eastman. I was playing first in the wind ensemble and first in the orchestra. I was I, I was doing very well in the auditions. So I I played first on that uh, Carnival album with Wynton Marcellus. Really? Uh, yeah. So wow. that, that section is me and Jim Wilt and Doug Prosser and Jerry Keener and Bob Feller. And it was, it's, it was, it's like this great section. But I was, <clears throat> Doug and I were on top on that, uh, playing the first part. And I remember th- listening to that going, wow, that sounds really good. I have no idea how I did that. And then I kind of went downhill from there because there was just a lot of a pressure on myself to play. And so overplaying and then trying to overcome that with effort was my downfall. And um, I ended up having to go study with Arnold Jacobs that, uh, you know, that's a whole story about how I fix myself. But um, as far as how I fix my students, I try to get them to play as easy as possible, as quick as possible. And so a lot of them, you know, they, they, they get up and they try to, you know, play with this huge sound, you know, and they take these big, huge breaths and they try to blow the walls down. And I'm like, you know, that's that's not what your routine is about. If you can't buzz your mouthpiece like you're singing, you're doing something wrong. And so I have this whole thing called singing air that, you know, <clears throat> that that instead of blowing the trumpet, we support the trumpet with singing air. And that has really made a difference for me and for my students. Um, and I know that there's some people on this podcast that might take exception to this pedagogy, but this is this has really worked for me and my students. So, so y'all can do whatever you want, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to, instead of going, <gasps> we're going to go, da 
outside and very little warm air is going to come out. And that's how I'm going to play the trumpet. Period. <clears throat> and, and, and I'm going to support that based on the register I'm in, but I'm not going to ever blow the walls down. Because in the end, this is your hole. Okay. And if you're, you're going to blow the walls down into that hole, you're in trouble. If you look in your mouthpiece and look in the hole of your mouthpiece, that's what you're dealing with. And once you realize that, and you're not a trombone player or a tuba player, uh, you know, and, and so those guys, and I study with Arnold Jacobs. So actually, one of the things I'm doing in June is going down to ITG and presenting uh, the Arnold Jacobs uh, method as, a po as, as applied to the trumpet, which I feel like I, as, as, a, as a student of Arnold Jacobs, I studied with him off and on for four years. Uh, I, and and got some great things out of him, but I also struggled with that pedagogy. He, you know, would have me do the inspiration spirometer and the breathing bag, but then he had me playing beautifully in the in the in the room, and he would always say no back pressure, and I'd be like, okay, so I'm, but I feel back pressure. When I had struggles, I felt a lot of back pressure, and what I didn't realize is that when he had me playing well, he was having me play Arben's thing. He'd go. Da 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 dee da, da 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 dee da, da 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 dee da, and I'd play da 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 dee da, da da. But he was singing. He wasn't going da 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 dee da. He was going da 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 dee da, da 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 dee da. If I put my hand in front of my face when I'm singing that, a little warm air is coming out. That's it, and I'm supporting that sound. Da 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 dee da, and my chest is is up, and I'm 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 in a very good place to sing that note. I'm using singing air. Which is different than I'm not I'm not blowing a candle out on the other end of my bell. If you think about what's inside the trumpet, there's air inside the trumpet. All you're doing is activating that air, and that air is vibrating, and it's vibrating the air in the space in the hall, and it's vibrating the air outside of your listener's ear, and inside your ear, the the, the air outside of your listener's tympanic membrane is vibrating. Nothing from your pie hole is getting into your listener's ear. Period. So, so you're not blowing air into your listener's ear. You're you're setting a chain reaction in motion with vibrating at the mouthpiece. So that's what I think about doing all day long is playing free and easy mouthpiece, which involves singing air. You've you've opened up a lot of questions that I want to touch on, but one one illustration that I've used uh, in podcasts or with students of mine is when I am speaking to my wife and I'm telling her that I love you in those lovely moments, I'm not going to say, <gasps> I love you. Right. You know? I'm just, it's going to be very, very natural. If anything, I'm going to breathe. And then when I'm almost out of air, I'm going to say, I love you, honey. You know, it's all depends on the situation. Well, let, let's go there. Okay. So if you want to make a loud sound, let's say you're angry or let uh, the example I always use is let's say somebody took your cell phone accidentally and they're going down the, the, the out to the parking lot and they're going to get in their car and you're not going to see them for two weeks and their name's Mike. You're going to say, Hey Mike. <laughs> but when I did that, I didn't go, Hey Mike. I just created a lot of sound. Hey Mike. I just went, I, 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 I don't know how I did that. I didn't even think about breathing. I just created a lot of vibration and sound right here, which carried, I know my wife's downstairs going, what is going on up there? Um, but, and I have my students do that. I think, think about what you did to say, hey, Mike. So, so when you play loud, it's all about increasing the intensity of vibration, not, again, not blowing huge quantities of air through the horn. It's just not the way it works as far as I'm concerned. And, and again, you guys can, 
people send me hate mail if they want. But more often than not, people that listen to this pedagogy go, oh, that's what I, I wish, I wish this was around when I was struggling because I, I've helped a lot of people who are struggling with this. And, it, you know, this works for high note players too, man. If you can get efficient with your air and, and not overblow the instrument and use your air correctly, you have to use supported air. I'm not telling anybody not to use air. You just have to use the right kind of air. So when you sing loud, da, and I'm not a singer, but I, again, I didn't really go, da, you hear those tenors that overblow their voice and their ten, their voice kind of goes like this, up and down and it oscillates and you know it's like the beginning of the end for that aria. That's what they're doing. They're overblowing their voice. But you listen to the great singers. You listen to the Pavarotti's and people like that. And, and you go, oh, they're, they're using that singing air to the most efficient way possible. And that's, that's what we want to emulate is that the way the singers use their, their vocal cords, that's the way we want to use our lips. This is probably so, way too much <laughs> into the pedagogy uh, that you wanted. But. The thing about these podcasts is that we can listen to them again. And we can also rewind. So if there's anything that uh, you need to... Go back, just hit that button on your player that says back 60 seconds or whatever it is, and listen to this again. So if we could just summarize this quickly, the best way to put what you're saying is rather than more air, you want more vibration. Correct. How do you get more vibration without more air? Because if you use a lot more air, your lips just want to blow apart. Your lips have to stay together to vibrate, right? So so you, you, you increase the intensity of the vibration by by... Well, the instruction is to order up more vibration, okay? As far as what physically happens, I don't really want to get into what I think physically happens. I don't even know if it's correct or not. It, the, the great thing is I don't really have to know exactly what happens. I just have to know the instruction that I give myself and my students. And the instruction is, hey, Mike, that's it. Make a lot of vibration right here, right around your, your face. And, and I guarantee the trumpet is designed to take that vibration right at the mouthpiece and put it out there. That's the, that's the job of the trumpet. Don't do the trumpet's job. Don't try to get your, your sound through the bell because it's, it, 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 that's the job of the trumpet. You're, you're balancing it out wrong if you're trying to blow the walls down, getting actual air through the horn. Again, I know there'll be a lot of people going, wait a minute, that's not right. Because, you know, there's a lot of band directors that all they know is to tell their trumpets to use more air. And they're screaming at the trumpets to use more air. And that works a little bit, right? You can go, whoosh, and you can you can uh, use a lot more air. But most of them are too open here. So they go, which works for a trombone and a tuba because you're down that register. And so I have these things called wind patterns. So if you're going to go, I'm actually making the pitches. with my inside oral cavity. And that's really literally what you need to do on the trumpet. You can't play the trumpet by just going and pushing the valves. You have to position the air in a way that's going to be going to be beneficial to efficiently vibrating the instrument at the resonant point. So again, so it's a simple for a simple instruction just wind pattern things, don't whistle, don't sing, but if you wind pattern it and put your inside oral cavity in that place, it all becomes easier. Good, great. Well, now trumpet has become easy <laughs> in 30 minutes. Can you believe James it? James is like, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I understand what you're saying, and me personally, 
uh, people listening to this, they can speak for themselves, but I have found what you said to be true. And I've found it, it's been my own journey to, to realize this truth. And I would probably would articulate it different than you. No, no. But the important thing is, so, so I make my kids, my students write down in their words what they do when they get it right. So, so when I get them balanced out like this and they play great and they're like, wow, that was easy. That was like not even playing. I don't even, it, they say all the time, it feels like I'm not even playing. And I go, good. Now take your pen and paper and write down in your words, not my words, in your words, what that was. And again, we, getting back to the beginning of this podcast, I have them become their own teachers and they're going to present it different to, to themselves and their teachers. And that's fine. My question for you is when is the first time that you you've already mentioned your your teacher John Nelson so maybe this is the answer but when did did you first see someone it was just easy for them it was probably John Nelson well that yeah i've seen people like that all my life i haven't understood it my whole life i think the question you're asking is when did i look at somebody that was playing that way and go oh i'm doing it wrong and i'll tell you exactly when that was um and that was my first year at banff i've been fortunate enough to be at banff uh, I, I, we did it for three or four years as a member of the all-star brass. Uh, we, we went up and did this brass ensemble and we also taught students, uh, up at the Banff center in Canada with Jens Lindemann and Ryan Anthony and Marty Hackelman and, uh, Les Niche and some, just some of the greatest brass players, uh, around and Mark Gould was there. And, and so, uh, we would, I, I would do these arrangements of like Alpine symphony and Pines of Rome. We would record this crazy stuff. And, you know, I was playing well, but I still didn't know what I did when I played well. And I happened to walk in on a master class that Jens was doing. And he was doing his crazy thing where he lay down on the tr on the floor and he played a high G. And it was like no effort. Was like like a double G or a G on top like, of the staff? No, four-legged line G. Like okay, got it. Okay. High G, top got G. It. Like screaming, high, screaming loud high G. <laughs> I looked at that and I was like, okay, wait. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. How did he do that? And then he talked a little bit about how you play piccolo trumpet. I think he was working with a piccolo trumpet per, a student, student playing piccolo trumpet. And he was talking about this, this thing that I'm talking about. He, exactly. It was a, different words, but it was exactly what I'm talking about. Don't look at what you're playing. You're playing this little bitty instrument. Don't, don't kill it with air. Just balance it out like you're, you're saying. I'm not sure even what he said, but I couldn't stop thinking about him laying down playing that high G. And I went home and I, I, retool just about everything I thought about kind of retro retroactively. Like I was like, I, my whole musical trumpet life flashed before me and I was, everything started clicking. I was like, Oh, there's that and that. Oh, that makes sense now. Oh, that's how that person plays all that stuff. You got your son. He, he's, he's trying to show you something there. <laughs> yeah. He wants me to sign in to get, download a game on his iPad and Hey buddy, he'll have to wait. <laughs> You're going to have to wait kiddo. I'm sorry. <laughs> No. He can't hear you. That's a look. James is wearing earphones. Ah, okay. No. Yeah. Not during the interview, son. I will. I think I will leave it at the end because it's very personal. Um, but I'm gonna run it by you. I'm, I okay. probably will ask you what. Um, how do you feel when you are alone and you play trumpet? And my second question is more into the personality. Um, what kind of personalities do you think they choose to play trumpet? But I will have a little, like, few lines of introduction before I ask you those two questions. So do you want me to answer those now or wait? Um, he's the master. I should get permission from James. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the master? Oh, I love this when we're on the call. 
The master of the podcast. See how things change. I'm the master of the podcast. The master podcaster. That's I want to I want to bring Sauna in to the dialogue at this point because uh, you mentioned Ryan Anthony, and th- I asked that question of you because it was Ryan Anthony that th- that th- this first time that I experienced someone making it just look effortless, and I remember very clearly as like around 2003. And I was, I, I had never played professionally at that point in my life. I was always an amateur, but I was seeing the Canadian brass in Seattle. And I was in, like, I think the first balcony, paid a lot of money for the expensive seats. And they were playing um, a suite from West Side Story. And they were, it, it, they got to the part where it was the, um, so they're doing somewhere. And they, they get to this really, beautiful part it's it's really it's really loud and then they repeat that phrase the from a high b down to a a middle e da da and he just hit that b like it was melted butter and i was sitting there in the stands in in the uh, in the rafters thinking man i want to do that <laughs> and that was my first exposure to seeing something that I knew to be difficult, and it was effortless. To this day, 20 years later, I still refer to that moment where if, if I want to play something difficult and make it look easy, I think about that moment right there. Well, if Ryan could play it effortlessly, if you play it like Ryan, it will be effortless. It won't be hard. It won't exactly. be difficult. So, exactly. So, and, and if you figure out how he balanced himself out for that, then you can play like Ryan or like exactly. Jens or like anybody that's that's a great trumpet player. You can play yeah. like that. You just have to figure out what the hell they're doing. Exactly. And it's yeah. not going, <gasps> you're not doing that. Right. And and what we were talking about is like I didn't I didn't consult with a great teacher to figure out how to do this. It was just a process where I basically taught myself how to, and I don't, I don't play at a level that Ryan Anthony played at rest in peace. I, I, I don't think I'll ever play at that level, but at, at the level that I can play, there are things that are difficult on paper or that once were difficult for me that are easy. Right. So you begin to think about things differently. Yes. Now sauna has, you've listened quite a bit to Ryan Anthony. I don't know if you've realized it or not, but that uh, cancer blow those YouTubes with uh, the cancer blows, and you love those the Gabriel's oboe where he's playing, and then the um, uh, the someone to watch over me. Yes. Now you're not a trumpeter, so tell us why you like these two pieces so much. Honestly, I love uh, the second one, someone to watch over me. When you play it, and for some reason, when you play it. The melody, the tune makes me cry. <laughs> uh, it's not because I'm sad or anything. I think it's just touch really the innermost part of human being. Um, I try to close my eyes and hear to all the tone high and low. And it just moves me. And I love it. It's my favorite piece. Uh, Gabriel's Oval, right? Am I right? The name? Um, I started listening to it long time ago when I was uh, in Uzbekistan, in Tashkent. Somebody took me to a conservatory in Tashkent and um, a young Uzbek kid played it. And it just stuck in my head. I found it on YouTube. And for a couple of years, I keep listening over and over 
but and then found it is a piece from a movie uh, where missionaries were in Indonesia, and I watched the movie, and it just stuck to my head, and I was like, how human beings actually sacrificed their life to save another human being's life. But that music had a lot of meaning in my life. Did that student play it on the trumpet? It was on the trumpet, yeah. In Actually, in Uzbekistan, their conservatory is very famous and is huge. And anybody in the public can freely go and watch students play on specific days. Really? Did you know that, Phil? I did not. Wow. So the Tashkent, what is it, the conservatory? Tashkent Conservatoria, University? they call it. <laughs> oh, okay. So they have a budding or the like a thriving music program, huh? Sorry, say it again, James. They have a like a thriving music program. The gate is always open and people are like going in and out, most probably in the afternoons or weekends. Yeah. Sounds like it's quite a program. But what's what Sana's talking about is 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 something emotionally that connected with her through this music. And I always remind myself, my students, that we're here to convey emotion. We're not here just to play the notes. We're not here to play all the right notes. It doesn't matter if you miss a note, it matters that you convey something that you're feeling, something real that you're feeling that you want to give to your audience. And unless you're doing that up on stage, you're not doing your job. That's what we get paid for, is to, to elicit the kind of emotions that you just described. And it sticks, when you say it sticks in your head, it makes you feel something. And so you have to do that as a musician. And that's why we spend all these hours in the practice room to try to get that kind of reaction to people. I'm happy you just said that. If James allow me, I want to actually now ask my question because it's related. Uh, like James said, I'm not a musician, but I have noticed that lots of my students, when they have some issues in their life, personal issues, or maybe they come from a family that is very hostile, uh, they often play some sort of instrument. And they do it often. They do it at university. They stay long hours at university just to play their instrument. I was curious, how do they choose these instruments? What kind of personalities Let's uh, talk about trumpet because this podcast is about trumpet. What kind of personality actually choose to play trumpet to get over those feelings or maybe the anxiety, the hostile situation they're in? These kids are probably as young as 18 or maybe old as 24, 25. My answer to that is I think we often pick our ex instrument quite by accident. Uh, in my case, I listened to the Hawaii Five-O theme and thought that, but I didn't realize what that instrument would mean to me. So it almost doesn't matter what instrument you pick, you're going to have that emotional outlet in your music. And I think the important thing is to play music, whether it's the piano or the oboe or the violin or the trumpet, it doesn't matter as long as you're getting that outlet. And I think music can really help anybody get through a bad time in their lives. It certainly helped me. Uh, I think one of your questions was, what do you feel or what do you do when you play alone? I We, yeah. we all sit in the practice room and play alone, or we play, I play a lot of Bach cello suites alone. Uh, it's my time with me, you know, everybody's got, uh, you know, a lot of people have kids, family, demands on their from their job. When I'm in my studio and I have my routine, I have about a 45 minute routine, that's my time. And I do that before I drive in and see my students and worry about their problems. I That's all about me. And I try to take that time for myself and it really helps me. And I've, I've found that less and less I do exercises and more and more I just do the music that I love and, and try to, again, my routine is all about how easy can I play the trumpet. And so I'm taking these 
technical things that I'm trying to achieve in my routine and playing music at the same time. It, it's kind of like, like a relationship between you and the instrument. Like right. the same thing for us. If I have a good um, start in the morning and uh, my husband cheer me up or just say something to appreciate me, it's like I'm recharged for next 48 hours. <laughs> and everybody sees it. My students come and say, you're happy today. Can I hug you? Can I kiss you? Something like that. So it really affects them. And it, I noticed that it also affects my puppy. Anytime I'm happier and I probably, the hormones in my body is uh, producing a happy, you know, hormone. My uh, puppy is always jumping around me, want to lick my face, you know. It's just the same thing, I think. I think my, the, what you're saying, it makes sense. So... Um, a lot of people choose the instrument and they have personal relationship with the instrument because the love between them and the instrument and whatever they favor and they play, it affects their mind and give them more um, courage, confidence and boost their self-esteem. That's how I observe my students. But I was not quite sure because I'm not a musician and I don't know the like we were talking about the pedagogy of the musicians and whatever you're teaching. So, yeah, thank you. You just well, I think what we have to remember too is that that the, the these these things that we play the trumpet the violin the bassoon they are instruments they're mm -hmm. a reflection of ourselves they're not they don't have a specific personality although we sometimes we assign personalities to them when I play poorly it's not my trumpet's fault right mm -hmm. and so I think it's the instrument is an extension of yourself and that's why I say it doesn't really matter what instrument you pick as long as you're you're having that interaction with this musical instrument and producing this music. And it's really special. I think everybody should do it. Um, not everybody does. And and less and less people these days play instruments. You know, it used to be that everybody played something and now that's rare. So I think we've, we've lost something as a society because we just don't play, not as many people actually produce music. They play the radio. Uh, or the fool. Uh, <laughs> Can I share one more thing, James? Very quickly. I'm kidding. Okay. Yes, sir. Go ahead. <laughs> now you're in trouble. <laughs> so actually, James knows. So in Vietnam, there are not many trumpet players. The people mostly tend to choose saxophone rather than trumpet. But recently, we have recruited students uh, who play trumpet and his friends play saxophone. And uh, it was end of the day, I went to the tea corner place and I asked the student, uh, why did you choose this uh, instrument? Uh, Vietnamese love to play piano. And uh, the boy was like, you know what? I'm extrovert and I'm at university. I want to find a hot chick. <laughs> <laughs> There's that too. <laughs> and, I, and he was like, Isana, you have to help me. I love this girl, but her parents doesn't like me. I said, but you chose the right instrument. Play it for them. <laughs> so he played the trumpet? Oh, we got one student who plays trumpet and his okay. friend plays okay. saxophone. That's strange, yeah. But he has been to Europe and America when he was very young. His parents sent him to study. It's scientifically proven that trumpet attracts more babes than the oboe. Very good. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you get all these letters from oboe players. Because <laughs> yeah. all the oboe players listen to this show. Right. All right. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I didn't know that you were on 
that album, Carnival, with Winton. It was amazing. It was an amazing experience. I, I want to ask about that because I, I often listen to actors describe like their their roles in these iconic films, like Few Good Men. And people will ask uh, Kevin Pollock, did you realize that you were part of something that was going to be an icon in American pop culture when you were making the film? And I want to ask that of you. Did you... What was the scene like there? Did you realize that you're going to be part of an album that has basically shaped the destiny of the trumpet in some ways? I think we all knew that something special was going on. Don Hunsberger did brand new arrangements of the tried and true Arben solos that we've all grown up with. And he did them specially for Winton and the Eastman Wind Ensemble at the time. And CBS Masterworks was recording, and we had uh, Steve Epstein as our producer, which if anybody knows anything about recording, Steve Epstein is like the, 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 the king of great albums back then in the 80s. And, and it was, yes, we knew we were, we didn't know how special it would be, but we knew something was up. I mean, it was, it was a pretty special time to be at Eastman. And, and like I said, my colleagues were among the best, if, you know, at that time, uh, you know, I didn't know what these people would turn into, but I'm sitting next to Doug Prosser and Jim Wilt and, and these people who, uh, went out and did great things and, and <clears throat> continue to do great things. And so it's, it was, it was really cool to be a part of that. And, and just, we, 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 we didn't know what it would turn into, but we just did our best and played and it was great. Very understated. I love it. And I will say that my first time ever being like blown away by any, any trumpet player was that album. I think it was my band director in the ninth grade. This would have been in the 1990 time frame, I think maybe 89, 90, something like that. Uh, Steve Olson, my band director, he played that in the speakers in the band room. It was we just had some downtime. And he was playing it, and I'm you know I'd been playing for five or six years at that point, and my I, my, I think it was that last section of the Carnival of Venice. You know what I'm talking about with with the the octaves and really something special. And to this day. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Has that album been equaled as far as the technical proficiency? or like? I don't think anybody's even tried. Everybody listens to that and goes, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's the way it's done, right? I mean, huh. and so, uh, you know, if, if you let me share my screen, I'll show you a few of these pictures. Yeah, definitely email them to me, and I'm going to find a way to get some get them on the web for people to but, see them. But they're, they're, they're pretty... Um, you know what, we'll do this later. Anyway, uh, there's some great pictures of the trumpet section and of the whole wind ensemble. And you can just tell on our faces that we know something something's up. And Don Hunsberger's always got this great grin on his face. And and Winton was so so energetic that week. He knew I think he knew something special was up too. But he was in the in the height of his career at that point, just doing all these albums with, you know, all these orchestras and, and this was something different he wanted to do. One of the things that was great about Winton is he just had went so many different directions and did it all really well. This is, this is, this is wonderful. And, um, I feel like we've really, I feel like this is a complete interview. I've, I've really enjoyed that. Sana, do you have anything that you want to, anything else you want to ask? Not really. Just want to thank, uh, Phil to take time off from his busy schedule and definitely your wise words help to magnify our cause in this podcast. I think my main message to all my students is that you go out there and do something that means a lot to you and share it and and people will listen. I think the, the mistake is 
a lot of people practice, practice, and they, they get all the right notes and they think, well, why aren't people calling me? It's because you're not saying anything that hasn't already been said. There, there, there's something in each individual that you're going to say that's unique and you have to get out there and say it in a way that is personal and, and share some of yourself. And that's, that's dangerous for some people. They don't want to share themselves. It's personal. But you have to do that in order to be an artist. That and they haven't updated their website. That's it. Speaking of websites, we can find Phil on the web at philsnedeker.com, S-N-E-D-E-C-O-R, philsnedeker.com. He's got his bio. He's got uh, trumpet and organ music for sale, His all of his books. It's really, really extensive uh, body of work. So, I got, I got a new book that I did during COVID called The Lyrical Orchestral Trumpet that takes all the hard, soft excerpts and makes an etude out of them and makes them fun to play. Lyric, lyrical orchestral, say it again. The lyrical orchestral trumpet. Okay. Uh, it takes things like Schumann II and uh, Chassi Piano Concerto and uh, Academic and, and Outdoor Overture and all the things you get, you know, kind of mm -hmm. nervous about because it's soft and touchy and, and writes a whole etude on it. And hopefully at the end of it, it's just a lot of fun. And if you can get through the etude, the, the excerpt's easy. Wow. Lyrical orchestral trumpet. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So on my YouTube channel, I, I end up playing through most of them, but also Jim Wilt recorded a lot of these during COVID. And it was kind of my COVID escape as I would write the, write this book. Let it not be said right. that nothing good came of COVID. We, we have the lyrical orchestral <laughs> trumpet. Yes, there you go. All right. Well, we appreciate your willingness to share your, your story and your experiences on the show. And, uh, Hopefully the stars will align and we can do it again. But until now, but until that happens, we bid you adieu and a fine day, Mr. Snedeker. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you guys. If you are interested in checking out the uh, photos that Phil was talking about in the interview, I have a URL for you. And you might want to write this down because you'll be able to see the photos right there. Uh, let me get it up for you. It is flowjn.com. F-L-O-W-J-N.com forward slash Snedeker. So it's flowjn.com forward slash S-N-E-D-E-C-O-R. That is the webpage that is specific for this episode. And I will upload those photos right after I get finished recording this little addendum to the podcast. But uh, check it out, flowjn.com slash Snedeker. Thank you for listening and we will be in your earballs very soon. That's a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet and the words of those who play it. If you or someone you know has a dynamic story you think should be shared on the show, please email us, podcast at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. And if you haven't subscribed to my email newsletter, it's a lot of fun. Visit TrumpetDynamics.com or JamesNewcombOnTrumpet.com and you're off to the races. Thank you for listening and we'll be in your earball soon. <laughs>